not everything on this forest floor is what it seems. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. And this is it. It's rather difficult to see because it looks exactly like a dried leaf, but it's a stick insect. There's its head, antennae, and that's the tip of its abdomen. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why Third Coast collects and curates and brings you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low on the air, the internet, podcasts. We look behind every curtain, leave no stone unturned, and then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Forrest Carter died in Texas in 1979 and they buried him out in the country where he grew up. But the tombstone reads, Asa Earl Carter. What you see is not always what you get. The world is full of illusions, imposters, imitators, and fakes. Yet we are always shocked, shocked, when we find out things aren't always what they seem. But I ask you, are they ever? It has come to my attention completely by accident that Donald Draper here is not who he says he is. Mr. Campbell, who cares? What do we really know about other people's lives? Double lives, double binds, double trouble. Today on ReSound, imposters. Stay with us. Everyone's heard a parakeet imitating human speech. Seems impressive, but compared to the lyrebird, it's bupkis. When we came across this story, especially given its appeal to our inner audiophile, well, we just had to build a show around it. That's how amazing this little lyrebird is. Let me introduce him to you now. His name is Chuck. He lived in an Australian zoo, and every single sound that you're about to hear for the next four minutes was made by Chuck. Every sound. Remember that. deceased and passed away maybe six or eight months ago. An amazing vocabulary of um, mimics, and I think that endeared him to the public at large. He died at the age of about 34, I think it was. It's very rare that that species breeds in captivity, so for us to get a bird passed on to us from Hillsville Sanctuary in Victoria was, was quite a bonus, I'm sure. The bird was hand-reared, so he came with a certain set of traits, which probably didn't endear him to the females because he never mated or he never produced any offspring because he's too imprinted on humans and he accentuated that with his mimicry.
Even at the end, when they were building the new panda enclosure, Chuck was doing all different sounds from construction equipment. And I think his vocabulary birds, you wouldn't know if it was a kookaburra or it was Chuck around there because he'd just keep repeating all kinds of stuff. There went lorikeets, kookaburras, um, magpie larks. He had a broad range of vocabulary and I think, you know, he was an absolute legend in the zoo. had more hits on the website than the pandas but he was a bit of a problem at times you know we we were desperate to try and get him to breed but he was not interested in females because of that that situation that he had been hand reared and um he become so imprinted on humans and that was to his detriment because it would have been great to have another offspring of his chuk has definitely done chainsaws camera shutters were very were a big one and, and of later times machinery some of that would have been from the wild but some of it some, some of the things he would have heard at Hillsville, but most of them were local stuff around here. He lived a fairly good age, 34 for a bird of that species, which is basically a pheasant-like species. Isn't a bad age. I mean, he died prematurely. He was actually picking in the dirt and got some pine bark caught in his throat, so he didn't make it past that. he go down the folklore here at Adelaide Zoo, and it's been one of the most popular things that have been exhibited over the years. Chook in Memoriam was produced by Mike Ladd for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 Documentaries. For a link to watch Chook in Action, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Little birdie, why do you fly upside down? It's amazing that the way you get around So our friend Chuck is an imposter by nature. He can't help it. He was built that way. But you have to be a little more suspect when it comes to a species higher up on the food chain. Our next story is the tale of two authors. The first wrote strident Southern segregationist speeches. And the other is famous for his well-loved children's book about growing up as a Native American boy. And yet, the writers have suspiciously similar names. Ma lasted a year after Pa was gone. That's how I came to live with Grandpa and Grandma when I was five years old. 
I was Little Tree. The Education of Little Tree is the story of a Cherokee orphan boy who, at the age of five, goes to live with his Indian grandparents and learns the wisdom of his Native American ancestors. I followed Grandpa down the trail. The wind had died in that late afternoon of winter, and I heard Grandpa ahead of me humming a tune. I would have liked to live that time forever, for I knew I had learned the way. You really felt for this little boy growing up in the Tennessee mountains. It made my heart sing, and I thought it was actually the truth. Let me tell you of a time in Tennessee when I da 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 dee. My name is Ron Taylor, and uh, this is my copy of it. It has gotten rather tattered. His signature page it says for Ronnie, my friend, whose loyalty to the Southern cause has made us comrades. Forrest Asa in quote Carter. The only time he ever signed it that way. It's time for another essay on liberty by Asa Carter. Thank you. The one great truth is race. From each Asa race, Carter had a colorful background, to say the least. My name is Wayne Greenhall. I've been a reporter in Montgomery, Alabama since 1965. And back in those days, Asa Carter was a segregationist. Ku Klux Klan, and he worked as a talk show host in Birmingham. The left-winger so much wants to make our history a shrouded nothingness of confusion, to twist the songs of our fathers into bebop rhythms, and to degenerate our mores into a cacophony of chaos. You've been listening to Ace Carter with an essay on liberty. In the early 60s, he got a job as governor of George Wallace's speechwriter. They'd call him and tell him what they wanted, you know, and they'd just give him a cup of coffee and two packs of pale mails, and he could write you a 20-minute speech in 30 minutes. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. The uh, George Wallace, segregation now, segregation forever speech. It's vehement, it's mean-spirited, it's hateful. It's like a rattlesnake was hissing it almost. But it's beautifully written. And it all came from Asa Carter's pen. My name's Tom Turnipseed, and I was director of George Wallace's national campaign. Times changed, and Wallace wanted to cool it a little bit. He wanted to be more moderate. Asa's views were too extreme. And so Governor Wallace, he just kind of brushed um, Asa aside. So Asa got mad at Wallace and ran for governor. The 44-year-old Carter has four children with names that echo the old Confederacy like Tara and Bedford, and he has long embraced right-wing causes. Do you think that it's immoral for whites to have to go to school with blacks in Alabama? Oh, absolutely. Of course, we can't have that. But Asa Carter, he lost. He was a fourth of a four-man race. And so George Wallace became governor again. We present to you the next governor. I was covering the inauguration in January of 1971. And after the speech, 
I found Asa out on the back steps of the Capitol, and we sat on the stairs talking, and he started crying. He said, Wayne, George Wallace sold out. He's betraying us to the liberals of this nation. He stood up and turned around and said, farewell. Well, I am just an old rebel. Reckon that is all I am. For this carpetbagger government, I do not give a dad blame. I'm glad I fit again it. I'll keep fighting till we won. And I don't want no pardon for nothing that I've done. This is Asa Carter. May God bless you, and I thank you for listening. And that's the last time I ever saw it. Asa Carter, he just vanished like he dropped off the face of the earth. My name is Chuck Weath. I'm Betty Weath. And I and my wife ran a bookstore in our town of Abilene, Texas. In 1975, this man came walking in the store and said, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Forrest Carter. He wore a cowboy hat, blue jeans, and had a mustache. He's dark-complected, smile wrinkles around his eyes. He was so friendly. He said he was Cherokee, and he didn't have parents. They died in a car wreck, as he told us. And he was raised by his grandparents back in Tennessee. No electricity, no running water. And I liked him. From the very start, I liked him. Forrest wanted to be a storyteller, and so he started writing. In 1973, he self-published the novel, Gone to Texas. My name is Dan Carter. I'm a historian, and I'm writing a book on Asa Carter. He literally sends his novel out over the transom to a number of Hollywood people, including Clint Eastwood. Eastwood reads it and immediately likes it. And so they sign a film agreement with Forrest Carter, as they know him, to produce what becomes the film The Outlaw Josie Wales. He lives by his word, and he lives for revenge. Clint Eastwood is the outlaw Josie Wales. You're going to pull those pistols and whistle Dixie. And over the next five years, he writes away. And uh, he became more and more a kind of public personality. In 1975, Forrest Carter was invited to New York to be interviewed by Barbara Walters on the Today Show. Good morning, this is Today. I'm Barbara Walters with Jim Hartz. She asked him questions and he said, well, he rounded up cattle, wrangled horses, and then he says, and when I'm in Oklahoma, I'm the storyteller to the Cherokee Nation. I literally got down in the floor laughing and rolling around. Call the wife. Ace was on TV. He's on with Barbara Walls. And I'm just rolling around on the floor laughing because Asa had pulled it. You know, he had fooled him. <laughs> and it just bum-fuzzled me. I was working for the Alabama Journal, and I thought, well, hell, I've got to find out if this really is Asa. So I started interviewing more and more people. Sure enough, in a few days, Forrest Carter called me, and he said, you this green hall boy writing about me? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, uh, now you don't want to hurt old Forrest, do you, boy? 
And I said, come off of it. He said, I recognize that voice. I said, I'm not trying to hurt you, but I want to tell the truth about what is going on here. And he pretty much after that hung up. And the story ran in the New York Times, August the 26th, 1976. I really honestly believe that once readers knew who this individual was, it would cause them to reject the books. But it was like it didn't take. (laughs) People just ignored it. They denied it. And that was it. Forrest Carter died in Texas in 1979. He was brought back to Alabama, and they buried him out in the country where he grew up. The tombstone reads, Asa Earl Carter. But probably the most interesting thing about his entire ironic life was the huge success that happened after he died. In the late 1980s, the University of New Mexico Press reissued Forrest Carter's autobiography, The Education of Little Tree. One time, Grandma told me, when you come on something good, first thing to do is share it with whosoever you can find. That way, the good spreads out where no telling how far it'll go. A sweet, sentimental story of this little Indian boy. And it suddenly exploded. It just took off. Oh, everybody loved it. Customers read it and passed it around to friends or sent it on to relatives. People cried. They cried through that book. It changed their lives. The word that people use is, is, this is a deeply spiritual book. It sold well over a million copies. It's translated into other languages. Oprah Winfrey endorsed it on her television program, and it was number one on the bestseller list of the New York Times despite the fact that it was not what it appeared to be. For one thing, the Cherokee words that he uses aren't Cherokee at all. They're words he made up. Monola, the earth mother, came to me through my moccasins. She was warm and springy and bounced me on her breast as Grandma said she would. Most people who love the book simply could not imagine that a former Klansman, racist, anti-Semite, this person couldn't have written The Educational Little Tree. Well, one way you look at it, it's a tree hugger's book. You know, it's all about nature and, you know, and this, that, and the other. And the other way, it's a right-wing government leave-me-alone book, you know. The government took Little Tree and put him in an orphanage, you see. And the government did this, and the government did that to the American Indian. And that's the way I read it. <laughs> Asa Carter. I wish I knew what he thought, I really do. But I honestly don't know. On that smoky mountain ridge in Tennessee. I could tell you of a trail in Tennessee. Thirty-seven years have transpired since Forrest Carter walked through our door. Do you think that it's been a difficult thing to reconcile these two different people? Well, I personally chose to remember the Forrest Carter I knew and the other life he seemed to have had. I just sort of dismiss it. I agree with that. I didn't like Asa Carter, I'll guarantee you, but I did like Forrest Carter.
The Two Lives of Asa Carter was produced by Joe Richman and Samara Freemark of Radio Diaries. Most of us only get one life. Come spend a bit of yours with us. We don't even care if you are who you say you are. Check out our website, where you can peruse our library of thousands of audio stories from around the world curated for their originality, element of surprise, and excellence. Just go to Third Coast Festival and wander around. So let me play that now. I'm just changing that over now to 33. Here we go. Coming up after the break, a new way to hear your favorite 45, as in a small one-song record spinning on a turntable. Retro, stay with us. Do you know how easy it would be for me to impersonate you? Well, let me tell you, it's frighteningly easy. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're pulling together our favorite stories about imposters. With just a few of your personal details, I can apply for anything you can apply for. Driving license, bank accounts, loans. How do you fancy a second mortgage? When we heard our next story, we knew it would knit right into this theme because remarkable things happen when you take a fresh look at a familiar person, place, or even an object that you have held hundreds of times in your hand. Or in the case of our next story, something you've heard. Producer Steve Urquhart is one of those people who can put a new spin, literally, on something tried and true. I was at home one night, maybe about six months ago, in the kitchen, washing the dishes. I always have the radio on when I'm washing off. It can take me ages because I keep stopping to change channel. Turn off the tap, dry my hands, find something more interesting to listen to, get bored, do it all again. But washing up is boring, so I need something to keep my brain occupied. Yeah, definitely. Oh, my... Anyway, this particular night, I switched on NTS, which is like an experimental station in London, and it plays anything and everything. But what I heard was properly unusual, even for them. I was like, it's crowded house, but they're playing it at the wrong speed. It's too slow. freedom within there is freedom without try to catch the deluge in a people come maybe they'll change it to the right speed they're not gonna change it maybe it's me maybe my brain slowed down or speeded up didn't change it. It kept playing. And I left the dishes and I listened. And I thought, this sounds brilliant. It's beautiful. 
it's not perfect his voice sounds a bit weird but the music the drums the bass the guitar especially the guitar intro it's almost magical I think because it's a song I know I must have heard it hundreds of times over the years I don't particularly like it I don't particularly dislike it but I was hearing it in a whole new way I was noticing things I hadn't noticed before the congas the hi-hat I don't know why, but that slowed down, crowded house song stuck with me. And after a few days, I remembered another thing I'd heard, maybe about a year before. Dolly Parton, Jolene at 33 RPM. Yes, there it is. Mm, it was popular. Quite a few people have put it on here. Tom Berry has uploaded this one. How many views? One and a half million. Look at all these comments. It sounds like Neil Young, but with a deep voice. Strange, but very cool. Sounds like Tracy Chapman. Better than the original. The best thing on the internet. down Tom Berry and I'm on my way to see him. I don't really know anything about him other than he put a slow version of Jolene on YouTube and now he's inviting me into his home. Well, I've invited myself really. Behind me is about, uh, I don't know, uh, five shelves worth of uh, vinyl, lots of albums, uh, quite a lot of singles. Roughly uh, how many would you say? About 5,000 I would guess, somewhere in that region. I tried to get my niece to catalogue them and she was quite up for it until she actually started and one afternoon took her up to about A. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's, there are quite a few there, more than I know about and more than I'll ever play I guess, many of them I'll never play. So let's take, tell me what you've got in your hand there. So I've got the 7 inch of Jolene 1974 on RCA. It's a lovely orange colour, very underrated colour. One of the reasons why I love it. I shall play it. This is Jolene at 45. This is, this is Jolene at 45. Let's hope I've actually lined it up correctly. have you had this particular single for? Oh gosh, uh, 30 years? I'm not entirely sure. I must have played it 50, 60, 100 times. It's one of those ones that comes out quite regularly. It's, uh, it's a beautiful record. But it's almost too fast. <laughs> so, you know what we're coming to. Yeah. When did you first play it at 33 and a third? I first played in 33 and a third in 1994. And I remember it very well because a friend of mine, Andy Butler, uh, he told me that uh, as a kid, he would, I'm just changing that over now to 33. One of the things he and his brothers found that if you play Jolene at the wrong speeds, 
He said it sounds a little bit like early Bruce Springsteen, which I'm not sure it sounds exactly like early Bruce Springsteen, but it does sound particularly good. So let me play that now. Here we go. Jolene, 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 Jolene I'm begging of you, please don't take my man Jolene, Why do I like it? I, I like it because It's, it's, it's even more haunting in certain ways. I mean, the male style of the voice. It's still Dolly Parton singing. It's still exactly the same record we were playing before. But slowing it down um, it makes it slightly more melancholy. And it's actually a very melancholy song. It, it's almost as if, you know, I, I, when I first posted this on, on YouTube, I think about four or five years ago, it, it didn't do very much. No one was very interested. And suddenly a few people started seeing it. And then, and then uh, people around the world started sharing it because they were they were really excited, really interested to hear it at this 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 speed. And Dolly Parton herself even tweeted me to say that um, she actually sounded better as a man than she did as a woman. And for me, that was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me, apart from obviously having my kids and marrying my wife. But you know what I mean. Tom and I are the same sort of age. He's 38, I'm 39. So we grew up with very similar music. And so we end up spending a large, probably a bit too large, chunk of the afternoon getting slightly competitive about what works at a slower speed and what doesn't work. We agree on some things, like with the Bee Gees, Barry's voice definitely turns out better than his brother's voices. Curtis Mayfield. I mean, there's there's just a small amount of Curtis Mayfield in there for me with Barry's voice. And anything by ABBA is surprisingly disappointing. I've got my crowded house example, although I don't think Tom's convinced by it. So why did it captivate you? I mean, I think the guitar's fantastic. the guitar at the start, and I think the middle bit with the organ. Yeah. You know when we come to the middle yeah, bit, yeah, yeah. it sounds like the start of White the Shade yeah. of Pale. Yeah, because if you listen to um, Where Did Your Love Go by the Supreme Slow Down, it's pretty good. It sounds like it could be The Temptations or something like that, but the saxophone in the middle is just brilliant. It's, just, it's absolutely just sort of nails it. It sounds like a big baritone sax when it's probably a tenor saxophone playing. And it's just absolutely on the money. Tom's kind of floored me there with the Supremes, so I need to come back with something big. I've been saving this one. So Cindy Lauper, so girls who just want to have fun. Let's give it a be go. Be honest. Don't, don't, don't humor me. I will me. be honest. I will well, be. I'm sure you will. smiling. Could be Tears for Fears. He knows it's Cindy. It does sound like Tears for Fears. But already his mind is wandering. Or Howard Jones. She sounds remarkably like Howard Jones. I come home in the morning like my mother says when you go to live your life. It works. It does work. It does work. Oh, 
Cindy Lauper might well work, but what have we done to this record? It's almost like a, a man who's sat in the corner, right? He's trying to be happy. He's in a pub, he's in a club. He's watching all the girls dancing and having fun, but the poor old guy can't get a dance. You know, I think, I think that's what's happening here. It's basically me when I was about 16 years old. And now, look at us. Two grown men on a weekday afternoon, going through records and listening to some of the hundreds of 45s slowed down to 33 that are on the internet. This should be depressing, melancholy, as Tom said, but what a peculiar pleasure it is. I really want to know what some of my friends think about it, so I go and ask a couple of them, Dermot and Carrie, Carly Simon, you're so who hopefully know me well enough to go with it. Talk like that. <laughs> Does mean that that voice is a horrible voice? It's really creepy. Loser. It sounded really pissed off. <laughs> Beck always sounded pissed off. It sounds even more pissed off in this song. Ah, Frankie Valley. What are you going to pick? Ronnie. Frankie Valley. No, that doesn't work. It's no use. We all agree, nothing beats Dolly. In fact, remember how some people said Jolene at the original speed isn't as good as slowed down? Let's try the normal version again. Too fast. Yes. <laughs> I think it's because my brain has slowed down in the last ten years. I knew you would get this. I think that younger people really like fast music. Yeah. Some people do anyway. And exactly. Then, and as you get older, you think, wow, oh, that way too, sounds way too fast. And it's because our metabolism slows down. Our brain slows down. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. Brilliant. I did have a theory that it might be an age thing, and Dermot jumped in there before I could even say it. He and Carrie and I are all roughly the same age, as is Tom. So, how can I prove this theory? It's going very slow and everything's really low. That's one of my nephews. He's ten. The other one's eight. And I'm playing them a slowed down song that's a bit more from their era. It's slow. What does his voice sound like? Who does it sound like? It sounds like Santa Claus, but like even older. No, it sounds oh, like drunk Santa Claus. Yeah, drunk. it's drunk Santa Claus. Well, there's the proof. Alright, it doesn't really prove anything. Maybe I should take the results of my unscientific test to someone a bit more, well, sciency. I'm David Rooney and I'm the curator of time at the Science Museum in London. I think it would certainly be reasonable to conclude that there was an age-related aspect to this. However, I would need a lot of convincing that that was by any means the only reason or the overriding reason. I'd find it hard to believe that it's as simple as we like slower things when we get older. I had a feeling it might be a bit more complicated. So what do you think is going on then? Well, there's, there's a standard story about the Industrial Revolution and industrial societies, which is that life speeded up for people when they moved from rural areas to cities and towns. And 
it's easy to believe that life's always speeding up and it's getting out of control. But as we move to post-industrial societies, we're seeing people challenge that fatalistic assumption that we have to submit to the clock. And there are movements of people actively slowing down parts of their lives as a counter, as a balance to the speeding up elsewhere. It might have started with the slow food movement maybe 25 years ago, where people chose to counter against fast food and say, no, no, I want to take two hours to have my lunch and I want the ingredients to be locally sourced and carefully produced and I want to take my time. And that's what this is. They're starting to choose to slow life down parts of their life and playing music slowly seems to fit so well into that. I think this is quite serious. Slow Jolene is wonderful to listen to, but I actually think it's reflecting something really significant in societal shift. People, people are choosing to slow down. Part of me totally gets this, and it is just like switching the turntable from 45 to 33. Limit the number of revolutions per minute, per day, per year, per lifetime, and those revolutions might be more satisfying, more successful, more enjoyable. But hang on, I'm very nearly 40. I'm now closer to the age of 45 than 33, and there's loads I still want to do. Why would I choose to do things slower? If anything, I should be speeding up. Time's running out. And then I listen back to Slow Jolene, and it makes sense. David's already turned 40. He understands. The focus and the clarity that this slow version of it brings you're listening to it completely fresh and you hear on every note and every heartbeat I don't know I just think it's remarkable I could listen to it any number of times and each time I would get something new out of it I'm begging of you please don't take my man how the music is constructed you hear more when it's slowed down you kind of hear how it's obviously quite complicated, mm. and if it sounds that complex when it's slowed down, it must be. Please don't take him just because you can. There's a feeling of kind of opening the music up and seeing if there's, like almost seeing in between the gaps. They're almost like taking a magnifying glass, you know, and kind of looking at it a bit closer. It does seem like I'm seeing more. There's my metaphor. It's kind of like opening up life and looking between the gaps. Come on, you'd be disappointed if I hadn't found a metaphor in this. And I'd have been disappointed if I hadn't found another song that... Okay, it's not Jolene, but it's not bad. Yes, sir, I can boogie by Baccarat. the music's working. <laughs> this is a little bit too porn, doesn't it? <laughs> it's turned it into something quite different. <laughs> the heavy breathing, it's a bit too porn. Just a little bit too sexy. But I like it. Good if you were making a film though. What kind of a film? No, like if you were doing like some sort of like a film set in the eighties, this would be a good one. Like a a cheesy gear film. This would totally work. Mr. 
Stuck at 33. <laughs> Sorry about that. 45's at 33 was commissioned originally by ABC RN's Creative Audio Unit for Radiotonic and was produced by Steve Urquhart. There was a call just literally going out the door. And my, my husband went back and answered it and um, said, It's for you. And. Uh, this rather low, slightly gravelly voice said, Quinn, and I said, yes. He says, this is your Uncle Tip. In the pantheon of science fiction writers, James Tiptree is not on any bestseller list. But in the 1960s and 70s, he had a loyal following, in part because of his non-traditional approach to writing about relationships and gender roles. But to the disappointment of his fans, he never made public appearances, restricting his contact with them through writing letters. He was hoping that his aura of mystery would stay a mystery, but it didn't. Here's Eric Malinsky. Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough is a fantasy writer in the Bay Area. She's best known for a series of historical vampire novels. When she was starting out back in the late 60s, it was hard for women to break into sci-fi and fantasy. One of her first publishers didn't even want to use her real name. The promo department insisted that I go as CQ Yarbrough, and I said, well, if it's a deal breaker, I suppose I'll have to go along with it, but who you think you're going to fool with this, I'm damned if I know. I mean, when I read science fiction from that period, I'm also shocked to come across this madman mentality. Like, take Arthur C. Clarke. I mean, I loved his 1973 novel, Rendezvous with Rama, but I couldn't help but wonder... How can this guy be so visionary in so many ways? And so absolutely deaf, dumb, and blind in so many others, yeah. Uh, The only woman on the ship is a secretary, and there are genetically engineered chimps Mm -hmm. who have more responsibilities than 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 she does. does. And the thing about not wanting women to be in the space station because the zero gravity would be distracting because their boobs would be bouncing around. (laughs) Oh, come on. Get real. But Yarbrough felt there was one male writer who got it. James Tiptree Jr. The women in his stories had a mind of their own and a secret agenda that was usually hidden from the male protagonists who had just one thing on their minds. So Yarbrough wrote some fan mail to Tiptree. He not only wrote her back, he offered to mentor her. She would send him rough drafts of her work and then he would write back something like, There's nothing wrong with it. You just left out the last 20%. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. After a while, she'd just get really excited when his letters arrived. I, I, as soon as I would see the, you know, an envelope and its purple ink on the front, ah, it's Tip. <laughs> Tiptree was mysterious. He wouldn't talk on the phone or meet in person. His mailing address was McLean, Virginia. And there's always a part of me that goes, I know what's in McLean, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> the CIA. Everybody knew it was a pen name. That was obvious from the beginning, and I know that a couple of writers would do things like, you know, begin notes to Tiptree by saying, you know, Dear Dr. Kissinger, or... (laughs) (laughs) So one day, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough opened her mailbox, saw that purple typewriter ribbon. Ah! 
It's Tip. But it wasn't the usual correspondence. Tip Tree asked her a big question. Would you be very offended if the person you've been communicating with the last four years wasn't a man? James Tiptree Jr. did not exist. He was the pen name of a 60-year-old housewife named Alice Sheldon. I sent her a telegram, and it said, uh, Tips, news, wonderful. Now will you please call me? So did she call you? Uh, yeah. I was about to go up to help the family trim the Christmas tree, and um, there was a call just as literally going out the door. I went back, and I, I, I got the phone, and... Uh, this rather low, slightly gravelly voice said, Quinn, and I said, yes. She says, this is your Uncle Tip. (laughs) (laughs) Alice Sheldon didn't actually have to change her biography very much to pass as a man. She liked to hunt and fish because her parents were African explorers. During World War II, she worked with the OSS and then later with the CIA. And she worked there with her husband, Huntington, or as everyone called him, Ting. Julie Phillips is the author of James Tiptree Jr., The Double Life of Alice B. Sheldon. She says Alice Sheldon quit the CIA after she hit the glass ceiling. But then she didn't really know what to do with her career. She just, for fun, late one night, wrote up these science fiction stories and sent them off to magazines. And she wanted a forgettable name, she said. She wanted a name that editors wouldn't remember having rejected. And, you know, obviously she intended the whole thing as a big joke, so she was in the grocery store. She saw a jar of Tiptree jam. She said, hmm, James Tiptree. And her husband said, James Tiptree Jr. (laughs) And so she typed that name onto the letter and sent the stories off. And then she got Letters back, of course, saying, you know, dear Mr. Tiptree, we'd like to accept your story. Which was a shock because years ago she had written science fiction stories and submitted them under her own name and gotten rejected. But as a man, doors were opening quickly. And James Tiptree Jr. turned out to be a perfect character for the 1970s Battle of the Sexes. Here was this kind of manly man who also had a sensitive side was interesting to women for the same reason and you know because he was a great flirt he was a man created by a woman which made him like a Mr. Darcy or a Heathcliff or something like that yeah and everybody wanted to believe there's another reason why people didn't guess that Tiptree was a woman the author of these stories clearly knew what it was like to lust after women even if the characters were often older men past their sexual prime Here's actor Eric Bergman reading from the story, Her Smoke Rose Up Forever. She does look up then, brushing her misty hair back, smiling dreamily up at him. Pilar of the urgently slender waist curving into her white Levi's, the shirt so softly holding swelling softness. Everything so white against her golden tan, smelling of soap and flowers and girl. Alice Sheldon had been attracted to girls from an early age. She had made a few attempts to act on her impulses, but they were rebuked. And she had a very comfortable relationship with Ting, her husband. But... He didn't 
I think, have a lot of access to her inner life. Or that's what she says at some point. She says that she's fond of a lot of people who uh, know what she's like than they know the continent of Antarctica, including Ting. But knowing all that about her really adds layers of depth to a story like Houston, Houston, Do You Read Me? Calling Major David in Sunbird. This is Luna Central. We are the service and communication facility for spaceflight now. In this story, a group of male astronauts has somehow ended up hundreds of years in the future. They're rescued by a ship full of women. At first, the guys think this is like a fantasy come true. Caveman? He chuckles. All the chicks land preggers. But they discover that men on Earth were wiped out by a plague. The female human race has been reproducing by cloning. And the women on the ship have no plans to bring these 20th century cavemen back to Earth. Of course we enjoy your inventions, and we do appreciate your evolutionary role. But you must see there's a problem. As I understand it, what you protected people from was largely other males, wasn't it? We've just had an extraordinary demonstration in that. You have brought history to life for us. We can hardly turn you loose on Earth, and we simply have no facilities for people with your emotional problems. Alice Sheldon was growing discontent. She felt like Tiptree was having all the fun while she was living this stifling life in the suburbs. She even created another fake writer called Rakuna Sheldon. No one's sure why exactly, but this new female persona who had her real last name might have been a Trojan horse for Sheldon to finally reveal herself and retire Uncle Tip. But it just didn't work creatively. She didn't feel the same sense of liberation that she felt writing as James Tiptree. And then in 1976, her cover got blown. One of her fans found her mother's obituary, listing Alice Sheldon as the only descendant. That's when Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough got that letter, asking her not to be angry. And I said, well, I was disappointed on two points. One of them is that you didn't know me better than that, after all this correspondence. And number two... I've been taking a certain amount of solace when our male colleagues drive me nuts to think, well, at least Tip understands, and now I know why. (laughs) But there was a subtle backlash. She was now no longer one of the boys. All of a sudden, there were deprecating remarks. Well, of course, Tiptree would write that kind of a story. Well, now that you know that Tiptree is she, that doesn't suddenly change the quality of the story. Alice Sheldon had wanted to come out for a while, but once she was exposed, her writing became more cautious and less experimental. And she discovered that this fake persona had really been an excuse to do what she really wanted to do, which was to be a recluse. Julie Phillips says she talked about suicide for years. Then her husband became gravely ill. He's nearly blind. He's needing more and more care. She's not really capable of providing that care. She's more and more depressed. She doesn't want to live after he dies. So she got him to agree to a suicide pact. And she shot him, and then she shot herself. I was was surprised and saddened, but, you know, I wasn't floored or, you know, how the hell could that possibly happen? You know, he was sort of the outrigger on her canoe. When that began to fail... I think that's where the the depression caught up with her. Yeah. Unfortunately. 
sounds it sounds like you're starting you're you're remembering how much you miss her to some oh extent. yeah oh yeah that's one of the annoying things when people predecease you oh yeah <laughs> alice sheldon was a lot of things she was a brilliant writer who i think really should have the same posthumous fame as philip k dick and she was also a pioneer in showing us how gender can be fluid and how one person can embody many different contradictions and identities. But her double suicide pact with Ting could also be seen as a final statement. I mean, she chose to die as Alice Sheldon, the housewife from Virginia, who didn't want to go on without her husband. He loved her for who she was, even if she said he didn't know her any better than the continent of Antarctica. The Mysterious James Tiptree was produced by Eric Malinsky for Unfictional, part of KCRW's Independent Producer Project. To hear a longer version of this story, check out Eric's podcast, Imaginary Worlds. James Tiptree and Alice Sheldon 45's at 33. Forrest and Asa Carter, a brilliant bird named Chook. All imposters. Don't let your ears fool you. Just remember, perception often turns out to be deception. I'm Gwen Maxi. Or am I? Here in Chicago, we are inspired by many things. The water twinkling off Lake Michigan, the soaring skyscrapers we're so famous for, and one man who transformed the way we talk and think, Studs Terkel. And I say, my, this must be fascinating. Join us on June 3rd for a listening event to celebrate the finalists of this year's Short Talks Challenge, which invited everyone and anyone to produce radio stories inspired by Studs, his insatiable curiosity, and his outsized personality. I'll be your host, and we'll listen to lots of stories by turns delightful and heartbreaking. And you will get to weigh in by voting for your favorite story. So come over to the Co-Prosperity Sphere in Bridgeport on Wednesday, June 3rd for an evening of suds, studs, and fun. For more information and to buy your tickets, visit shortdocs.brownpapertickets.com. The, the speed of this, the slowness of this, brings everything into a focus that I never heard before. It's a bit more atmospheric by this. It's a bit more atmospheric by this. I almost like taking a magnifying glass, you know, and kind of looking at it a bit closer. closer. 
You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>